Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. We are back for another episode of Positively Dog Powered, and you might recognize this week's guest. She was on back in episode six when we talked about racing and travel heading over to Worlds. Our guest is Dr. Sarah Cassing. Thank you so much for joining us again. Yes, no, thank you. No, again, it's I'm flattered to, to have been invited back and I'm pretty excited for today. Yeah, today is a topic that I see blasted all over the internet, no matter what dog sport you're engaged in, but certainly in our dog-powered sports world, and that is the idea of raising puppies and bringing puppies up to be good, um, you know, dog-powered sports buddies and partners for us, but there's certainly a lot that goes into that, and there can be some mixed messaging that people can receive about how much is too much and what's enough. So today we're going to talk all about that, but before we dive in, do you mind giving yourself a little introduction and telling everybody a little bit about your experience in both the dog-powered sports world as well as the veterinary world? Sure. No. So, yep. So my name is Sarah Cassing. Um, I'm an emergency veterinarian. So I started um, in general practice for about a year and a half and then switched over to emergency medicine back in 2013. So professionally, I work at a specialty and emergency hospital um, in Arizona. Outside of per- my profession, um, more in a personal envi- uh, life, I became active in working with sled dog sports um, during undergrad and vet school, where I started volunteering for the distance races up in northern Minnesota. And then I went back as a race veterinarian, and I've been a member of the International Sled Dog Veterinary Medical Association for quite some time now. I started my own adventure, my own personal adventure outside of my career entirely with with my own dogs back in 2017, when we got a puppy uh, from a sprint racing kennel, um, and she sort of kind of jumpstart our world um, competing in, in these sports. So uh, we kind of uh, focus on the, the mono sports, so the one and two dog sports, so bike drawing and, and kind of cross with some ski drawing. Um, but we also do play on the sled and, and rig as well. So, yeah, so kind of started that. Um, we um, back in, you know, started racing with her in about 2018 and sort of has kind of combined and extended from, from there. I think that you have a nice, unique perspective for everybody today, because not only do you have that science and medical background to you, but you also have that personal involvement. So everybody, of course, is very eager to get started with new puppies, and we can't wait to start doing the sports. But along with puppyhood comes a certain amount of protection that we have to do for them. You know, puppies, I think of them as little sponges, and our goal is to not only help protect that environment, but to set them up for success and let them know how great all of these fun activities are for them. So when we talk about socialization with our puppies, it's, you know, not only exposing them to the world, but helping them build all of these positive associations with it. And a lot of socialization can be very powerful with our sled dog sports and our dog powered sports. Um, But we also have to protect them physically. So talk to us a little bit about why with our puppies, we do need to be mindful about the types of activities that they are engaged in physically. Yep. No. So I think we can kind of break it down into uh, two categories. You have their their physical development, um, and then you also have their mental and social development. Um, so the physical development, I think, is what a lot of people and even a lot of uh, veterinarians that see pets kind of focus on. Um, and I think we'll probably get to in a second. But of course, everyone talks about the, the growth plates as being a, a huge point there, which which they absolutely are. Um, and we'll kind of touch on that in a second again, I think. Um, but the other aspect is, of course, their mental and social development. And in many ways, that is as critical, if not more critical, than how they develop physically. So those are the two points we kind of focus on. So I'm glad that you brought up that emotional development as well, because not only do we need to make sure they're developing correctly physically, but that mental development is what's going to give them that confidence to be able to travel to new race sites, to go to new parks with us, to be able to you know, pass other teams on the trail. And so there's quite a bit to balance here as we're talking about raising our puppies. No, absolutely. So no, very much is. So, um, so I guess, um, I I guess if you want to start with looking at the the physical development first, um, again, kind of focusing on their structural changes, you have their musculoskeletal development, the muscles, the tendons, ligaments, as well as their osseous structures, their bone structures. 
So growth plates are talked about a lot. Um, growth plates technically are epiphyseal plates, and these are segments um, at the ends of the long bones. So these are your long bones of like your limbs, your digits, your fingers, um, that is, is the location of where new growth happens. So they do close, um, and in most average on dogs, is anywhere, usually 18 months or less. Some, pup, some smaller breeds, it might be nine months. Some older breeds, it might be closer to 20 months, depending on the breed. Um, humans, this happens in usually about anywhere from 14 to 17, depending, um, give or take a few years. So, um, but these structures, um, uh, um, they are critical, they are soft, they, they can be damaged. But it, I think it's important to note that these are not joints. These And a lot of the injuries that we see in adult life is more joint-related trauma and joint-related damage. And so I think it's very important to recognize that these are not joints. And so um, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of myth and misconception regarding how fragile the, these are. So. So you mentioned a lot of other types of development that our puppies need to go through. And of course, like you mentioned, growth plates are mentioned quite a bit when people are talking about growing puppies. How much is too much when we're looking at kind of getting our puppies out and about? Where do we need to draw the line to make sure that our puppies aren't hurting themselves as all of these new uh, changes are happening within their bodies? So I don't know that there's a one-size-fits-all answer for every puppy, every case. And I'll, so you look at the, the range of the, um, the phenotype of the dog, and you have everything, the, as the cliche goes, everything from the Chihuahua to the Great Dane. And what works for one dog may not work for, for another. So um, you look into the research behind it. Um, unfortunately, the research behind what is too much is incredibly limited. There's a really good summary that uh, kind of touches on a lot of the research out there written by Dr. Daryl Millis. And he's a veterinary orthopedic surgeon that was one of the founders of the U University of Tennessee's canine rehabilitation program. And so he, he actually wrote a really good blog that kind of summarizes a lot of the research out there. It's under My Lame Dog, and you might be able to provide a link, I imagine, to that. Yes. Yep. Okay. And it's one that many of your uh, listeners might have already come across. So, so a lot of studies have been done on research beagles, and in beagles, they they haven't really pushed those them to high speeds, but at moderate speeds, we're talking three miles an hour or less, so a good brisk walk. They found that for a typical day, for like 12 miles or less a day, they found nothing detrimental. And if anything, um, that type of activity has actually been positive to developing a good cartilage development within the joints, um, irregardless of the growth plate. That said, um, there are some studies out there in, that have shown that um, if, you, if you do push that too far, we're talking 20, 30 miles or more, that on a microscopic level, you have seen some changes that are reflective of less cartilage, less proteoglycans in, in, in those joint spaces. But how much does that correlate to development of arthritis or change later in life? Nobody knows. Um, there's unfortunately not a lot out there of, um, of dogs in the real world. Um, the article does touch on a study that was done in large breed dogs. Um, I think they include the Irish Wolfhound, the Amberger um, Lab, and I think there's another breed too. Um, I think it was a, a study of over 500 dogs um, in his owner reported situations where owners described um, the life of their puppy and the activity of the puppy where they reported it. They did find a correlation that stairs um, could have predisposed some of these breed, some of these puppies to developing hip, hip arthritis or later in life. But the, the study, the authors do know that they didn't look into the genetics behind it. So how many of those puppies came from genetic backgrounds that were more inclined to develop the, that anyway, they, they don't know. But that same study did find that exposing these puppies to um, free play, a lot of new surfaces and unlimited activity as free play was actually protective. So while the study found that stairs, repetitive, same single stair activity might have been somewhat um, um, harmful, free play, unlimited activity on like um, on, um, multiple surfaces was positive to helping them go forward. So this um, outside of that, there, there are really limited studies, unfortunately. Um, if we look 
at other species. Um, if you look into wolves, for example, um, wolf puppies by about two months old, they're traveling with their parents for about a mile or so. And this is at two months old. Four months old, they're starting to travel further, um, joining the pack on hunts, not the whole way, but part of the way. So, and then six months to a year, they're traveling the whole time. And by year, they're actually actively hunting. So they're traveling 30 plus miles a day with the pack at about six months old or older without any judgmental effects. So if you look at, at the wolf compared to the dog, wolves, if you take the wolf as an example, wolves are indication that dogs really are capable of being these endurance athletes that they are. And of course, you could keep going on into um, how um, we've, we've taken the wolf and we've created so many different breeds of dogs out there and we focus on performance dogs sled dogs so we've taken the capabilities of the wolf and we've focused on that to be even a better performance athlete to where there's there's nothing out there that can compete with with sled dogs as endurance athletes so taking that into consideration i think kind of changes the playing field for for what is okay and what is not um well, the, the problem is, um, again, from an emergency medicine standpoint, if I happen to have a client that's asking or talking with me about I'm interested in doing more with my dog, it depends on that dog's background. It depends on that dog's genetics and confirmation. Um, I'm not going to recommend doing what I do with my own dogs for a client that has a Newfoundland puppy whose parents had torn the cruciates by the time they're two years old. My recommendation for that client is going to be completely different than what I'd recommend for my own dogs or a, a client that has a purpose-bred sport dog. So, um, so I, th I think just being very cognizant of that and recognizing that I think is, is incredibly important. Um, well, and I think that's really important too, because a lot of our listeners don't necessarily have purpose-bred exactly. dogs. Some people yeah. might have dogs from a rescue where they don't know a lot of them background. Yeah. Some people might have dogs that, you know, they got from a breeder where they know the parent's lineage. They know OFA ratings for hips and elbows. So everybody listening is going to have a different amount of knowledge on history of their dogs. Yeah. Can you Explain a little bit about why that matters and, and how that might impact uh, an individual's decision to, you know, engage in more activity with their puppy or not. Yep, no, absolutely. So um, I, I, th I think that the tricky part is um, a lot of the orthopedic and musculoskeletal conditions that we see later in life that, that are detrimental to quality of life, like especially hip arthritis is the biggest one. Um, hip arthritis, cruciate tears, a lot of these conditions. Um, being extremely cautious with a dog as a puppy isn't necessarily going to prevent that from developing. Um, those effects are going to likely develop for that dog simply because of their genetics and confirmation going, going forward, which is unfortunate to say, but the same is true in human medicine too, where humans who develop arthritic changes, things like that, a lot of it really is due to, and unfortunately our bodies aren't perfect and genetics aren't always in our favor. Um, running in and of itself and increased activity in and of itself as a puppy isn't necessarily going to cause that. Um, I think we're starting to realize in veterinary medicine that it isn't going to cause a lot of these musculoskeletal change, changes that were going to happen regardless, but it is possible they might hasten those changes. So if a dog was going to develop hip arthritis later in life, a lot of running, a lot of activity as a puppy might make that happen sooner. So that's definitely something we want to be mindful of going forward. Um, so and unfortunately, we don't have a crystal ball and there's not always a good way to predict if or how or when that might happen. Um, you can tell a lot of things where you can look at um, like a chondrodysplastic dog, such as like a Basset or a Dachshund, and you know a lot of hardcore running is not going to be good on that body as a puppy. So that might be a dog that we might look for different activities for. Um, versus, uh, again, you have a border collie that um, from working lines that you could really point them almost in any direction. And as long as you do things safely and cautiously, they can excel in, in most physical sports. So, And 
even though we're seeing changes, you know, from breed to breed or based Mm -hmm. on where somebody might have acquired their puppy, we can also see changes within a smaller population um, Mm -hmm. from each individual puppy in terms of the amount of body awareness or proprioception that they might have. Um, how much does that play into account as well in terms of kind of keeping those activities a little more structured for the puppies who might not be quite aware of where all their limbs are? Yep. Oh, no, uh, quite a bit, actually. So um, so puppies, um, again, this kind of swings back into their mental and social development. So prime age for that is anywhere from five weeks for their social and mental development all the way up to about three months. So they can learn a lot in that in that short time frame, maybe up to four months in, in some cases. So this gets into um, exposing them to um, new surfaces, new techniques, but um, but being mindful that nothing is going to put them at risk for 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 traumatically injuring themselves. So this would be like maybe like moving them like different textures, um, diff- like moving them to like sandy surfaces, mulchy surfaces. Um, you could even have walking over like small steps, um, nothing terribly high. Where, where trauma can happen physically is where um, um, is if trauma to that growth plate can, can happen. This would be something like active uh, jumping is going to be your big thing. So if you're um, so, like significant jumping, um, if you're kind of equated to like gymnastics in the human world, a lot of those tight turns, twists, or agility, or back in the canine world, agility type type moves, those are going to be a lot tougher and a lot harder on, on the growth plates. And that's where we want to be a, a little more careful going forward. There's certain things, you know, that we can obviously protect our puppies from, and we should protect our puppies from easy ones. You know, for me that I did with my puppy was just blocking off stairs. So we didn't run up and down the stairs uncoordinated a million times a day. Um, I have a really large SUV. So I chose to pick the puppy up and put, put her in the crate and then pick her up and take her out. Just kind of easy things on a day-to-day basis that we can do to help make sure that, you know, we're not causing any damage. Are there any things that you would say add to that list in terms of things as the puppy is developing that you would try to avoid? So um, again, high jumps are are the biggest thing. So how high is too high? I don't know that anybody really knows. So I think it's going to be jumping straight parallel is going to be safer than jumping, twisting to to the side. Um, But those are activities that definitely would wait until later in life. Um, A lot of it, though, is can kind of swing back to the self-directed play. Um, puppies, I think they're a lot smarter than we give them credit for in many ways where they, they'll recognize that this looks intense and I wouldn't push too hard to encourage a puppy to do something that they're not that they're not comfortable with. Um, to some degree that that's okay. And I, again, I don't know that there is any perfect metric or perfect way to measure what's okay and what's not. A lot of it, is it unfortunately is going to vary so much and is going to rely on the, the owner to kind of use their best um, judgment as far as does this seem safe or, or not. Um, Absolutely. And if they had any questions, they could always get in touch with their local rehab pro yeah. or, you know, their local Absolutely. veterinary team for a little more guidance about what might yeah. be appropriate for their specific puppy since there are so many changes based on, like we talked about, genetics and breed. Yeah. If we're kind of focusing on our puppies that might be a little more physically stable um, dogs that we might have a little more information on their backgrounds that are really kind of geared towards our dog powered sports and our sled dog sports. Let's talk a little bit about some of the activities that are safe to do in addition to that free play and kind of self-regulated play. Yep. So um, again, a lot of for, I guess, to kind of relate to what we do with our own training. Um, so we're kind of focusing on harness sports specific. Um, so between four and six months, we, we start introducing our puppies to the harness. Um, they're not really pulling much or, or very far. So our goal is to try to get them in the right mental mindset to know that it's OK to run and it's OK to have fun running straight ahead. So we'll take them to just super, um, really short distances. So we're usually like a half mile or less. And we do a kind of cross style where we'll put a little pull a little bit, just so they're feeling that that pressure. Uh, but it'll be, again, usually half mile or less is kind of where we start between that four to six month, month age, just to get them used to the harness and to help recognize that the harness means, yes, this is fun. We want to run. We want to pull. They want to kind of feel that pressure. 
and then we kind of expand from there. Um, we, we usually about six to nine months is where we'll start kind of increasing that distance a little bit. Um, again, there's no perfect system. Us personally, we'll start having them by about nine months. We usually start have increased that distance to maybe about three miles or so. So, so typical 5K. Um, if you relate that to distance mushers, uh, mushers that are run the Iditarod, which is a thousand mile race, they're, they're advancing these puppies much, much faster than we do. Um, so a lot of them are having 18 month old dogs that are running a hundred miles a day without any ill effects. And so a, a lot depends on the, the um, again, the, the type of training program and the type of environment that that puppy's in. So do your decisions or recommendations vary? for our dogs that might be structurally built different in the sense of being a little heavier boned yes. or being a little bit of a larger breed? No, absolutely. So if they're heavier boned or larger breed, especially, I would back off on that, um, on, on that recommend, on, on how quickly we proceed. Um, so I would still recommend getting them used to the harness, getting them used to that pull feeling at maybe six months or so, just um, just so that they learn what that feels like, um, especially if that is the, the owner's goal, is they want to do these sports with them. And um, the, they could certainly start at that age, um, but I would probably keep the distances pretty short longer. Um, and then, of course, you could always do more um more free running, more free play, more so, and, and continue that longer than I would with a dog that is more structurally designed for, for these activities. Um, now, now, when we're making these recommendations, it's obviously based on the underlying structure of the dog and, and how long it takes for that dog to grow. Yeah. From a science standpoint, why are those things that we need to consider based on that dog structure? Yep. So the Part of the problem is um, the larger breed dogs, the, uh, there is a lot of strain on the musculoskeletal system in that sometimes the, um, the dog's growth exceeds what its body is capable of. And so the, the body, so their body is already under a lot of strain. Um, you add that extra weight that puts a lot more pressure on the growth plate and the developing joint. Again, growth plates are not joints, but it puts pressure on both aspects of it that um, it is the risk of being able to do more trauma is, is there. The other reason for the delay is the rate of um, closure is, is prolonged in these larger breeds too. Some of them it might not close until they're 20 months or even two years in some cases, that you do want to be really careful and slower because that period where risk could potentially be more harmful is, is longer in these larger breeds. So and when you're going out on these training runs, obviously keeping them fun, like we talked about, keeping mm -hmm. those distances short, how many days a week are you bringing the puppies out to practice and harness? Sure. So at start, it might only be two, maybe three at most when we first start. Again, this is at that six-month range, so not a lot. Um, and then as they get older, um, we might start increase by usually we keep it about maybe two to three days a week up until maybe they're about a year to 18 months. And then it might be three to four days a week. Um, now it's hard to define what a training run is and what training is and that so much of our training really is free play. So much of it is just off leash free running. So it to we will be the first to admit that we don't have a strict rigid training program necessarily. So, um, uh, so it, it can be tough to kind of really articulate exactly what a specific week might look like and that no two weeks might ever look the, the same for us. So. Now, one thing you, you kind of brought to my mind when you were talking about bigger boned puppies and how they just in general are going to have more weight that is bearing down on those growth plates and on those joints. I think that also opens up a nice door for us to talk a little bit about weight because I see lots yes. of people in the pet industry, um, probably not quite as much with our knowledgeable mushers, um, but in the pet world, we do tend to think, oh, this is gonna be a big dog. I need to feed this puppy quite a bit so that it reaches that maximum growth. But in fact, having a puppy that is overweight is not good for them and can certainly increase you know, those concerns that we have about them. So talk to us just a little bit about what an appropriate weight is for a puppy and how somebody might determine that, as well as some of those risk factors associated with weight. 
No, absolutely. And that's a wonderful point in that, you know, you look at the research and weight is as detrimental if or more than genetics and activity. So weight is a huge, huge concern going forward. And no, so, um, so weight is important. Um, usually as puppies up until they're like two to 12 months old, I don't worry too much. They're pretty good at self-regulating, but it, it's hard to see a fat puppy under the age of like three months old. Um, Older than that, then we need to be more vigilant where we do definitely need to pay attention to. Um, there's a lot of good charts out there that will kind of show, at least for the adult dog, to kind of show what is a healthy weight. The same charts can can apply to puppies that are about three months old and older. Um, and that it's okay, depending on the breed, of course, some breeds you can see the ribs to some degree and that's okay. Um, you often go by feel more than appearance. So you can look at a chart. It might not tell you the whole story though, unfortunately, but a chart is a good baseline just to give some insight. And then um, talking with your veterinarian too can be helpful. Um, of course, some veterinarians may be more knowledgeable than others with knowing what a healthy weight might look like, but most should at least give you some, some guidance. Um, after puppies, about a year is where we definitely need to really worry about, but there's certainly plenty of breeds out there that they can become obese any pretty early on in life. And we, of course, want to be really, really careful with that. Absolutely. Because the more weight that's on their body while they're growing, of course, mm -hmm. as well as after growth, if they're engaged in any sort of physical activity, that extra weight can impact their mobility. It can add more, you know, stress and pressure on those joints. Um, and all of that is going to impact the dog's ability to move around easily, um, as well as their longevity in life. Yep, absolutely. In addition to getting them in harness, there are other things that we can and should be doing with them physically to help them with things like coordination and body awareness and kind of social confidence in new places, you know, long line walks or free running with the dogs. What, what other activities do you get the dogs involved in? Yes. Yep. So we, we do a lot of free running and um, with us living in the mountains of Arizona, where we've got a lot of wonderful trails that are accessible to us with a lot of varied terrain. There's going to be a lot of rocks, a lot of logs, a lot of roots, things like that for them to explore and just that alone just that really varied environment with lots of different surfaces is really beneficial for them to learn their body awareness and so free running um we, we kind of we'll kind of use the same distances um for for our free running as we do with with our in harness when, when they're young so again we're um again nine months is kind of when we'll kind of have them up to about three miles after the, about a year or so then we, we can kind of advance it much much further so um as adults um we do a lot of free running with them where they'll be yep just we'll be on our mountain bikes and they'll just be free running with us um or we'll be shore running and they'll just be alongside um off leash on where permitted and so and i think that is one of the biggest things that that's really helped help them really learn their body awareness going going forward um I, it can be tricky for, for, for listeners who may not be in, in an area where they are exposed, do have such natural resources available for that very terrain. And so a lot might come into getting creative. Um, I know there's a lot of wonderful products out there. And I know there's a lot, especially in urban areas, there's a lot of good canine fitness centers where, um, where memberships may be available, where you can bring your dog. And it's almost like a gym for dogs where they've the, the equipment out there is is pretty phenomenal with the, the different types of equipment that they have out there to help expose young dogs to new things and, and new environments. Yeah, I know in my area in particular, which it varies, of course, across the United States and across other countries, we don't have a lot of access to areas where it is safe for the dogs to be off leash. And there are a lot of leash laws that, of course, we want to abide by so we don't lose our access to these wonderful outdoor spaces. So you know, for me and my dogs, we do a lot of hikes with them where they still get all of that exposure to different tree roots and different directions and water and different surfaces mm -hmm. under their feet, you know, but a little bit of a slower pace. So that tends to work out for us as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, obviously, with all things we do in both the human world and the dog world, you know, too much of a good thing can end up having some ill effects, um, whether that be emotionally or physically. And then of course, if we are not doing quite enough, we can see those ill effects. Mm -hmm. For example, socialization. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about bringing our puppies up, we want them to learn how great interacting with other people are and other dogs are so that they get to new environments and don't worry about other people and dogs in their spaces. 
of course, if we do too much, we'll say from a human side of something, if we go in guns a blazing, we might in six months go, you know what, I am burnt out on this. This Mm -hmm. is too much for me. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, some of those impacts that we can see from the dog side of things where we want to balance you know, bringing them up appropriately and exposing them to just enough versus signs we might see if we're maybe overdoing things a little bit. No, absolutely. So, so too much, um, I think it's too much, it's easier to push them too much mentally than, than physically. Um, and mentally, we, it, um, you, the big thing is to kind of watch for for cues. Um, if they seem bored or distracted, it um, th- that could be definitely a sign that we might need to start backing off. Um, you, our, our goal is to always finish with them being more excited, with them wanting more. We, we don't want a puppy tired. Um, I, I think there's a, a quote that I saw, like exercising a dog repeatedly might get you a tired dog in the end, but you're not going to have a, a trained dog, essentially, uh, or a well-mannered dog, and so exercise isn't uh, isn't everything. You do need a lot of the the, um, the, the mental components too. Physic, uh, so mentally, again, we want them being really excited, really got re- really motivated to want to keep going. Um, if they are getting distracted, or if they're slowing down, or if they're starting to like just really want to stop and sniff, or or if you are seeing signs of physical fatigue, if they are starting to really lay down, really um, pant, just really act bored, those would be indications that we've got, we might need to really cut back. Um, and sometimes you might have to cut back to the point that you might need to start from pretty close to the beginning again to kind of re- reset things um, in some cases. So um, it, again, it, it, can, it can be a tricky slide, but... Um, and, and again, every puppy is so different. It can be really, really hard to tell. Um, now, as far as not exposing them enough, um, you can get to the point that um, the world can be scary. So if you haven't exposed them enough, especially to new environments or to new people or to new places, then they can just feel so sheltered and cautious that they just don't have the confidence to want to really explore and want to take the initiative, um, especially if you're looking for a, a dog to compete in one and two dog sports. And so um, so um, trying to get them to, to new places and, and new trails, new, new, um, new activities is incredibly important for that. I love how you touched too on, you know, when we're focusing on early training for the puppies, it should be fun. You know, the goal isn't necessarily right off the bat to be building these strong athletes. It's just to be kind of building this foundation and kind of giving them these little taster seeds of, hey, this is a really fun thing to do. And don't you want to run, you know, and feel that pressure. And this is so great. When do you start to make that shift, you know, with your own dogs and with dogs that, again, kind of have that structural soundness to be competitive in this sport from, you know, keeping things really short and sweet to focusing a little more on um, kind of how you would focus with your adults on training? Sure. You know, I I don't know if there really is that much distinction, actually. So because I think the whole time, the whole goal is to keep it as fun as possible for them. So even as adults, um, physically, yes, they're capable of going much, much further. But we want to make sure that mentally they're still wanting wanting to do more, too. So I, I, I think... At, um, I, I think the mental, as their mental drive improves and gets and, and progresses, we're able to take them more physically. But we will never take them physically beyond where they want to go mentally. So I love that. Yeah, if, if that helps answer. So. Yeah, absolutely. So a part of this, you know, we can kind of combine our sled dog training for harness as well as our socialization in the sense that. The goal is to be building these positive associations in new places. How much does that early trail selection matter in terms of difficulty of the trail, obstacles on the trail, maybe substrate of the trail in making sure that the puppy is both experiencing new things, but also having a really good time out there? Yep. So, you know, I, I think it can, it can matter to some degree. Um, I, I, Fortunately for us, we uh, we like starting on narrow trails. So especially for behind the with, with Conacross. Um, so it's very narrow, very single. So the puppy doesn't have 
um, much space to want to meander, want to meander to the side. Um, it's, and, and even as puppies, they're pretty good at taking the easiest route. So as long as, so they're going to take the, the path of least resistance, essentially. Um, if this is a wider, busy trail, um, it's, there's going to be much more opportunity that for them to choose a different route entirely where they might and much more opportunity for them to zigzag. And then of course, if you're taking a trail that might be more busy, that that can be a little tricky. Um, and so it can, it can become a challenge um, on, on wider, busier trails to get that behavior in that direction that you, that you want. And so um, I, I, it might take, it might be challenging for, for some of our listeners, unfortunately, to try to find a good trail setup. Um, uh, for those that aren't able to, um, being, um, uh, if you have a friend or someone else that's in, active in these sports too, um, playing leapfrog can be really helpful, especially on the busier trails, where if you have uh, a team that's more experienced, trying to encourage a younger puppy with, with a younger individual, again, even with these short distances, um, if the puppy's interested in veering off to the side, then have the more experienced team try to pass them and the puppy will, that would be helpful for redirecting the puppy to want to go forward again. So tricks like that can be really helpful for those that might not have opportunities to be on a more, more narrow trail system. So I love that. When I, whenever I think about, you know, setting up a training session, whether it's something mm-hmm. basic in the house or neighborhood, or whether it's our sled dog sports out on the trail, mm-hmm. I always like to think about setting everyone up for success, yes. right? I try to think of my environment and plan for as much as possible. Of course, things always go wrong. and There's always things we can't yeah. plan for, but by planning for as many as possible, you can help make sure that the behavior that the dog rehearses is the behavior we're looking for, yeah. right? So that when I take the puppy out, it's really easy for the puppy to drive forward and harness and follow the trail versus getting distracted by a bunch of other people. And so, of course, in these city environments, you know, urban environments, there's a lot of things that that might go wrong. But I always, I always like to remind my clients that if you get there and something isn't going right, or it's, you're starting to get frustrated, because, you know, the picture doesn't look like what you imagined, don't be afraid to like, call it quits for the day. Because the last thing we want too is our frustrations getting in the way and maybe soiling the experience for the puppy. So don't be afraid, you know, even if after you try to plan and do everything right, going, hey, this isn't the day we got to just call it quits. Yep. No, absolutely. No. And, and even there's times we make that same decision too, where we can tell that they're just not feeling it. And so we might call it a day um, even much sooner than, than expected. So now when you are working with your dogs, one of the things that comes up quite a bit when, you know, we talk to other mushers um, and when I talk to my clients is this idea between us teaching the puppy or the puppy learning via associative learning from the adult dogs that are on the team. And every musher that's ever had a really great lead dog will say um, all their praises about how valuable it is to be able to hook up those younger dogs Mm -hmm. to those adult dogs that are going to just drag the puppy past those distractions and kind of keep the puppy focused and help teach those directions. But a lot of our listeners are maybe raising their first sled dog or maybe Mm -hmm. only have one other dog that they run with. So they might not have that reliable leader to kind of connect and help the puppy learn. And I know that you guys do a lot of mono dog sports, a lot of one dog, a lot Mm -hmm. of two dog. How much of your puppy's learning is one-on-one with the human versus associative learning being connected directly with that other dog? So a lot of ours really is one-on-one actually. So, and again, starting with Lyra, who is our, our first puppy, like, um, we were very fortunate in that so much of that desire to just run and to follow a trail was just so instinctual for her um, that if, uh, again, if we hadn't started with a dog like her, I don't know if we'd be where we are today. Um, so it just came so instinctual for, for her. So um, many of our others too. Um, again, right now we have five plus a puppy and so, and our, each of our top, our, our top three, each of them, it just came so naturally where we, it was really was a lot of one-on-one, um, for, which again, we were just very fortunate in, in that sense. For um, a, a lot of mushes with the bigger kennels, I, I think for, for what limits it for them is they just don't have the time to devote as much as one-on-one as we've been able to with, with only having five, five dogs. It gives us a really lot of opportunity to really work on that one-on-one 
and I keep mentioning Conacross is how we start, and it really has been fantastic for for starting them. And I know a lot of mushers don't even have that opportunity either, where for one reason or another, being able to take a dog one-on-one Conacross just isn't an option for them. That the Nicebex thing really has been to hook them up with, with teams. So um, now that said, uh, for, for listeners who want to get started and they have a dog and want to start with one-on-one, but their dog isn't so keen on it right away, um, it's not it's still not an impossible task where it certainly could be done. I think the trick in that case is even if they're the only only individual out there wanting to do this with their dog, if they have a friend or family member that can act as a little bit of a rabbit um, on a bike or running to kind of help. We again, we do a lot of leapfrogging and just to try to help get that that fun, that game kind of going where that rabbit and chase kind of going back and forth really helps. And so if that puppy, even they don't have another dog to run with, but they're the type of dog that needs something, having another person or or friend to kind of help tag along with that um, can can really help kind of get get things started for them. So, and that's kind of what what we found um, with with, uh, one or two of the others that they love running two by two, um, but but if we had started with them as a single dog, they might not have taken it to as much as they might have otherwise. So, yeah. One of of the things that we've talked about quite a bit here is confirmation of puppies. And I think that that word probably doesn't have a whole lot of meaning for a lot of general dog population, right? They might not know how to look at a dog structurally and determine if the dog is balanced and put together well. Can you briefly, and I know this is kind of a loaded question because it's complicated to talk about confirmation, but can you talk to us a little bit about maybe some red flags that you might see in a puppy or some things where you look at and you go, I really like that. That's really strong. All right. So, um, no, that it is a tricky question to, to answer. So, all right. So I, I think, I think things to look for, um, you definitely want to look for a dog that's proportional. Um, a, a good analogy would be if this dog looks like a dog that is quite capable, um, to fend, to survive in a natural environment. Like, again, if uh, many, uh, many Alaskan Huskies will look very coyote-like or very jackal-like, and they look that way for, for a reason, that is what's structurally proven to be very effective in surviving, in, run, in, in functioning as an endurance um, animal that has to fend for itself in the wild. So I, if I were to equate the perfect structure, I would say a dog that has the body shape similar to a coyote is going to be what you might aim for, if, if that makes sense. Um, structures that might limit a dog, um, any of your giant breeds, they're, um, they, if they, if any of your giant breed owners, if, if they want to do this with their dog and if the dog is having fun and excited and really looks forward to it, there's ways to do it safely. Um, is that a sport that I would pick for a Great Dane or St. Bernard? No, it, it wouldn't be. Um, but um, it, only because um, the, the, these, the, these repetitive fast speed running sports can certainly be detrimental to the, to, to the musculoskeletal system as a whole. Um, but so I, w- I wouldn't recommend that unless the dog were really excited about it. Um, if the dog's really excited, having fun, wanting to do, and they've got the right spirit for it, again, absolutely give it a go. There's ways to do it right. Um, so that'd be one category. The other category would be um, the, on the opposite end of the spectrum, dogs who, the chondrodysplastics, as I mentioned earlier. So like your dachshunds, your bassets, um, those would be breeds that you want to do it with, with, with caution. Um, there's plenty of people that, that do it and are having a blast doing it with their dachshunds. So it's definitely not impossible, but you want to be very vigilant and, and cognizant of going forward with it. Um, so the third category I would pick would be your, um, your brachycephalics. So your breeds with the very short noses. These are breeds that they're not meant to run. So um, if they have the right spirit, the right heart, the right game, they want to, um, it can be done, but again, want to do it very, very, very safely. Um, so you want, so those would be the three, the, the three phenotypes that I would probably advise against diving straight into these sports with, unless the dog really has the interest and the right drive for it. And those would be breeds too, where if somebody were starting with kind of a puppy fitness or puppy exercise program, connecting with their local veterinary team to kind of talk about some of those risks or talk about some of those things they should be mindful of would be a really good idea. Absolutely. Yeah. And with our puppies, you know, 
again, confirmation can be hard um, to look at a front and rear for the untrained eye and go, yeah, this dog is balanced or this dog has great rear angulation, right? These are things that a lot of our people don't know how to look at and analyze. But we can also tell a lot about the structure by the way that the dog moves as well, looking at how kind of even and balanced that movement is, how effortless it looks for the puppy to kind of move around. Um, And then, you know, watching the puppy from the side and the back, if things are kind of swinging out or if the dog is kind of staying all in one plane as well. Yep, absolutely. So no, movement is absolutely important too for for analysis. And um, again, it's something that's probably better demonstrated visually than verbally. So I did, yeah, Mm -hmm. so it'd be really tough to really describe kind of even I myself, without actually seeing it, like I almost yeah. have to see a dog gate to be able to recognize it or not. So absolutely, and there's, there's so many good videos out there that can really demonstrate um, different types of movement patterns between the walk, the the trot, the the gallop, the yeah, yep. Now, confirmationally speaking, while we're on this topic, how much of an impact does a dog's confirmation have on its ability to be effective and efficient? In, very much. Um, now, a dog's drive can override a lot of things, um, but confirmation is going to absolutely affect a dog's ability to be a performance athlete. Um, again, similar in, in humans, where um, here um, again, there's several different sports in human medicine, but or in humans, but you're not going to have a sumo wrestler running ultra marathons. Uh, sumo wrestler is a phenomenal athlete um, in their own right but they don't have the build of the confirmation that's going to be enable them to be a world-class ultra runner and athlete. Um, similar with a competitive weightlifter, you might not find a competitive weightlifter that is a, a sprint racer. Um, and even within running, um, the build of an elite sprint racer is going to be so different than that of an ultra runner. And, there, and that sprint racer um, might never, even if they trained as much as they could, they, will ne- they may never be at the same level that an ultra marathoner is. The ultra marathoner is never going to be an elite sprint racer, no matter how hard they try. So the, the same thing we see in, in dog sports, too, where, um, where confirmation affects, affects their performance so much. So. I think a nice, easy visual example for me on that would be the difference between a Malamute and a Husky, Absolutely. right? We've got the really big boned no. dogs that are freight dogs, right? Not intended to be sprinters, certainly can be in, used mm-hmm. in dog powered sports for sprint yeah. racing, but are, are more designed to be those long distance freighting dogs versus our Huskies yeah. that are designed to be faster, to yeah. be able to move quicker. Yep, absolutely. No, I think that's a great analogy for for both dogs that are bred for moving and bred for pulling, but complete opposite ends of the spectrum there. So So if we have a listener who wants to be competitive, obviously the goal would be to find a mentor in the sport, to find somebody who breeds and races with the dogs in the disciplines that you also want to be in. But if we have a listener who might be looking to head to their local shelter and maybe find a dog that they could recreationally engage in dog-powered sports in, are there certain things that you would recommend that they look for as they're looking at puppies in order to potentially pick out a good, you know, canine athlete partner for themselves? Yep. So it can be tricky as a puppy because so many puppies, you really can't, especially when they're eight weeks old, you really don't know what they're going to look like as an adult. And unfortunately, and there's many puppies that might get misidentified as one breed over another. So it, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, it can be really tough. Um, so um, drive is going to be a big thing. Um, a puppy that is going to be physically able to be active as an adult is probably going to be pretty active and spunky as a puppy. So, and drive, and, and there's some cases where you might have a dog that physically could be a phenomenal athlete, but they just don't have the drive to want to do it. So looking for a puppy that is playful, engaged, um, really high energy, I think it's going to be really important for those that are looking to, to potentially enter these sports at a higher level. Um, now physically, um, again, your best bet is to try to talk with 
with the staff, um, ho hopefully you have staff the, within the veterinary profession or sports medicine um, uh, uh, knowledgeable staff at these rescues that can kind of help point out what they think these the predominant breed might be, um, their, their best guess as far as how big this puppy might be, what their, what their adult appearance might be, might be your best bet to try to get an appearance. Um, again, if you're looking if you're looking for a dog from a shelter to that physically is going to um, be adequate with the, with these sports, a dog built for running is going to be your best bet. And there's um, and a lot of your again your Nordic breeds like your your Huskies, of course, um, and then a lot of your herding breeds like your your Border Collies, Aussies, um, and then your sporting breeds, your German Short Hair Pointers, your your Vishlas, your Weimers. Um, those are probably going to be your top dogs for for. For, for doing well with these sports. Now, obviously there's, I mean, we could talk about puppies and raising puppies to be sled dog sports for forever because there's so many things that if you're new to the sport that you need to learn and there's so many different mentors you can have in your breed and in racing. But for our listeners, are there any special considerations that you can think of that we haven't talked about that you would kind of recommend or, or say when raising a puppy, especially with the goals of kind of raising a canine athlete? Yep. So I think a rule that I like to live by is let your dog live their, live its best life. So um, as heartbreaking as it might be, if, if you have a puppy that you're hoping to do these sports with and you're doing absolutely everything right, everything perfectly, and that puppy just doesn't have interest in doing it, it's okay to say no. Um, find what that puppy's um, purpose is. Um, again, the, uh, it happened to me with one, with my own dog who I adopted. She was a Husky mix. Um, she's an adorable little girl. Um, I hoped she would take to ski drawing. She said no. She I tried everything, everything right. It was not her sport. Um, she did not care for the harness. So we tried agility and that ended up being her forte. That was what she absolutely loved. And so I think that is one message that I would like to relay to, to listeners is it's okay to switch sports. If again, if your heart is set on this, it can be absolutely painful if it, if it doesn't work out, but there is something out there that, that will be your dog's purpose and they're, 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 um, that'll enable them to, again, to, to live their best life. I love that. That's important. You know, sometimes as humans, we have these big goals and we have to remember at the end of the day that all of our animals have their own um, you know, personalities and temperaments and what we want them to do might not be what they want to do. And that's totally okay. And, you know, as caregivers to them, our, our job is to kind of respect that. Absolutely. Yeah. So we talked about quite a bit today, Sarah, is there anything that we didn't discuss that you want to make sure that you add in for our listeners? Um, no, no, I, again, I think, I, I feel like we did cover quite a bit. Um, no, I, nothing comes to mind that we hadn't covered, but, um, I, again, I'm you know, always open to questions and always offered to try to offer my, my insight wherever I'm, I can. So. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to talk about this. I think that this will help quite a bit of people and of course, lots of puppies, which is exactly what we want. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. So until next time, have fun chasing tails on the trails. Oh, 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 oh